Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. For those of you guys visiting this morning and tuning in online, as Chris just said, welcome. We're excited to have you guys join us this morning. We're starting a brand new series, so it's a great time to jump in. If you're a Christian or not a Christian, it's a great time to step in because we're looking at a four-week series on our core values titled Our Message and Our Mission. And so uh, if, if you're not a Christian, in a sense, you get to look into the playbook at what we preach, what we teach, what we believe, and what we share over the next four weeks. But the reality is, is I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you've been here for any length of time, what we basically do is, is just take you on a, a, on a tour bus and maybe circle you around a different part of the town, but we drop you off the same location each week, which is the gospel message. And so this morning, that's what we're going to be looking at, at our message. And so if you would turn with me to the book of Titus, it's toward the end of the Bible. If, if you're new and not familiar with your way around the Bible, it's toward the end. If you get to Hebrews... You've gone too far. Hang a left and go back. It's right after First and Second Timothy. Uh, I'm excited because today marks six years for our family. We moved here six years ago uh, today, and so we moved here from Reno to plan the church, and uh, we moved here with our core team of me and my wife and our oldest daughter. We we had big dreams about the amount of people that are going to move and start the church with us and all this, but when it came down to it, it was us. I think we have a picture of. Wife and I from, yeah, that was us six years ago. So uh, less hair from church planting and, and some age. So that was us. I, I'm, I'm excited. I hung out with some other guys from our network this week, which is called Acts 29. And what I told some people when I got back is I would just rather hang out with our people. I'm like, <laughs> sure that our people might be crazy, but they're my kind of crazy. And so I just enjoy our people. I enjoy being around our church family. And so um, I love the work that God has been doing through and in um, our church here. So our message and our mission. In just a minute, I'm going to pray. And uh, if you are in here and you're a parent or a child of a, a parent, um, you can come and grab one of the worksheets up here um, that works through our questions that's uh, related to the sermon today. So just a minute, I'm going to do that. I want to say this before we jump in is uh, upon moving here, I felt like many titles were given to me. And many of the titles I didn't like. I've even heard people say like, hey, you should go to that church. It's where like the jacked people go. I've literally heard someone say, it's from a friend and a brother. And so like, I'm not ultra offended by that. But it also doesn't excite me because I don't want us to be that church of meatheads. Okay. And I've heard other things are like edgy and, and those types of comments. What I want to be known as, as a gospel guy. And what I want our church to be known as is gospel people. Like legitimately, that is what I want to do and what I want to be known as is I spent time with that guy and he's helped me understand the gospel. I've spent time with those people and they've helped me understand the gospel more. And the reason why is because that's going to last, that's going to stick, that's going to transform our lives. Anything else isn't going to. And so this is what I'm passionate about. This is what I, I get up in front of the church to preach each week. This is what I want our people to know more than anything else is about the message of the gospel. From the outset, we've said this is what we're going to preach and declare from every text that we arrive at in the Bible. We're going to show how it all ultimately points to Christ. It elevates him. It lifts him up. And here's the thing. 
People can say we're crazy. People can say they're, they're, uh, th- that they support a sound doctrine and all those things. But what they need to say is that we, we, we build our foundation. We build our lives upon this message. This is the thing we are most crazy about, and this is the thing we are the most passionate about. So with that, let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, God. We're not left with a God who has not spoken. You've spoken and you've spoken clearly. And God, you've made your gospel clear in your word. Thank you for your word. This morning, through your word, preach to us, speak to us, teach us, convict us, correct us, heal us, minister to us through the power of your spirit. God, I know that there's many in here this morning and listening online that are just at a rough, difficult season in life. Our hope is not in some advice. Our hope is not in some strategic plan. Our hope is in Christ. And I pray you would remind us of that this morning. That would be clear. And God, where we've just swerved from the message, where we've made other things our God, where we've placed other things at the center of our lives and where our hearts are no longer saturated in the gospel, saturate our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone asked, and someone has asked me, uh, which, which passage in the Bible really lays out the gospel super clear. I would tell people to turn to Titus. Titus is one of my favorite books. It's a pastoral epistle, meaning that it's Paul writing to one of the guys that he's been pastoring. At the beginning, he's telling him, hey, go and plant churches in Crete. And so as Titus is planting churches, what we get to see throughout this letter is that Crete is a place like much of the world that is corrupt and and, and that rejects sound doctrine. And so he's drawing them into sound doctrine, and he's also drawing them in to see that if you have a sound doctrine, and if you have a clear understanding of the gospel, what flows from that is a sound life. Over and over and over again, read the letter, start to finish some time, you'll find these two words that come up a lot, good works. Because Paul is saying that a good gospel and a good understanding of the gospel leads to a life of good works. And so that's what he's trying to articulate. So with that, let's read Titus 3, Verses three through seven, like I said, if someone asked, memorize this. There's many that thought this was a creed in the early church. Uh, some thought that it was a song that people actually sung. I think it'd be a great song to write. But three through seven just lays out the gospel explicitly clear. If someone's like, hey, what's the gospel? Here we go. Titus three, three through seven. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're going to read verse 8 too. The saying, this, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Here's the main point this morning. I believe, help me with my unbelief. I believe, help me with my unbelief. It comes from Mark 9, 24. There's a passage there, and and what's happening is this man uh, has a son, and his son has been demon-possessed, and he's mute. And so he goes to Jesus pleading, saying, will you please heal my son? 
Jesus explains to him that healing happens through faith. The man responds back with something beautiful. He says, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. That, that, that is the cry, I would say, of every Christian. I believe, but it's really fickle. Which means we're not saved by the measure of our faith, but by the object of it itself. I believe, help me with my unbelief. I would also say if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're listening, you're not a Christian, it's the same thing for you. I believe everyone believes. But we need help with our unbelief. I'll unpack that as we go. I want to give you guys some dates. In AD 476 was the fall of the Roman Empire. After 800 years of, 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 of reign and since. On 1517, Martin Luther nails his 95 thesis to the church in Wittenberg. In 1776, American, uh, was, was the American Declaration of Our Independence. In 1939, World War II begins. In 1945, World War II ends. In 1948, Israel declares its independence as a nation. What do all these dates signify? What do they mean? They're all news and they're all events that have happened in the past. And you have one of two choices you can do with news and with events. You can either believe them or you can disbelieve them. And we do the same thing. The gospel is what we call the good news. It's news of an event that happened. It's not advice. That's so important to hear. The gospel is not advice. We love advice because when we're given advice, we go, now I can do and take credit for something that I've done. The gospel is good news. It's news about something that someone else has done 2,000 years ago. You can either believe it or you can reject it, but it's news that's happened 2,000 years ago. Now let me give you some groups of people from the first century. There was the Pharisees. The Pharisees obey the Torah but what they like to do is add laws that go beyond God's word and then hold people to those laws. There was the Sadducees and scribes, and I know these two are two separate groups that, that, that are different. The scribes are actually a profession, but they were uh, an aristocratic uh, group that was very educated and, and that worked hand-in-hand hand with the government. They oversaw legal matters and such and such. The zealots. The zealots hated the government. They hated the Roman government, and they wanted to overthrow the the government. Many of them even wore daggers and, and would stab people for, uh, for, for, for standing in support of Rome. Then there were the tax collectors. They were the social outcast who were Jewish sellouts. They had, they had sold themselves out to, to Rome. And then there was the Essenes. Many believe that John the Baptist, his family was from the Essenes. Who were they? They were minim, uh, minimalist. They were separatist. They, they, separated, they separated themselves from society and their message was, let's live as, as minimal as possible. What do all of these people have in common? They all had a system, they all had a structure, but none of them had the Savior. So I, I need you to go back and see. First, we have these dates that all point to something, a news, uh, to news or events, and then we have these groups of people. All of these people were trying to do the same thing. They were saying, hey, we have what you need. We have the system, we have the structure that you need, and if you adopt this, the world would be a better place. Many today do this and buy into these sort of things without even realizing it. Many zealots today, that they're, they're, they would say the gospel's the main thing, but overthrowing the government is the main thing. We see this today with people that are outcasts, we see this people today that are arriving with their systems and strategies. Here's what the gospel does. 
and here's what Christianity does, and here's what our message does. It doesn't arrive with a system. That's not what God sent. He didn't send down a system. He didn't send down a structure. He sent down a savior, his own son, and said, actually, this is what you need. This is who you need. All of us universally have the same greatest problem, and that's our sin against a holy God. And we can adopt all sorts of systems. We can do what Donald Barnhouse said, and we can have clean and tidy streets. We can have very nice kids. We can have kids that don't cuss. We can have kids that say all the right things. Our our cities can look tidy and pretty, but they can be dead and damned if you don't understand the gospel. We we, we see people trying to convert people to our our worldviews, trying to convert people to this is what government looks like. This is what uh, systems need to look like. But what people need is the gospel. The reason why you're a Christian today is not because someone tried to convert you from a Democrat to a Republican, from Republican to Democrat. You're a Christian today because someone laid out the gospel for you over and over and over and over again, or one time. You're still a Christian today because you stand in the gospel. You will be a Christian in the future because of the gospel. Our job is not to convert all of these things. Our job is to stay immersed and saturated in the gospel. First, what Paul does, who's brilliant, which Paul is, he's a scholar, is he starts with sin. Why does he do this? Paul's aim is not to shame people. It's not to bring guilt on people. Paul does this because unless you have a big view of sin and a big view of your depravity, you will not have a big view of grace. You can sing the song Amazing Grace, but if you have a very small view of your own need of a savior, it's not going to be super amazing. It would, it would be like this. If you came to me and said, hey, Rick, I wanted to pay off your debt to Blockbuster Video, which I know those don't exist. They actually do. There's one in Ben, by the way. I just saw it. It's the last one on Universe. Free information. Uh, but if someone said, we'd like to pay off your Blockbuster debt, it was like $10, I would say, thank you. That's, that's very sweet. But I wouldn't be floored by that. If you came to me and said, Rick, we would like to pay off your mortgage, or Rick, we would like to pay off your medical debt, I would be floored. The only thing I could do is hit my knees and just be in awe and say, thank you. It's the same thing when we see the woman who's washing the feet of Jesus, and people are like, gross, why are you letting her touch you? And Jesus' response is beautiful. He's like, who understands, in a sense, forgiveness more, those who are forgiven little or those who are forgiven much? So Paul's purpose in here, even as Spurgeon says, is don't fly past this. Let this sink in because this is a sober reminder of who universally we all were at one point. Though you might be someone who's been following Jesus for a long time, you started here. We all did. Though you might not remember the exact moment or the exact day, this is universally true that we all were born with a sin nature, right? I've never taught Joey or Brooks to scream mine. I've never taught them to bite, to get what they want. I've never taught them to yell, I hate you. Where did those things come from? It's because we're born with a sin nature. And so what Paul does is brilliant. He's unpacking our sin nature. He's like, hey, he, he's telling them, be submissive to authorities, be, be submissive to the governments where he starts off. And then he's saying, for, there's a conjunction. He's saying, for, don't forget, guys, you're becoming Aaron in a sense. Maybe you're becoming self-righteous. Paul's just saying, hey, don't forget this. This is true for all of us. This is true for the apostle Paul. This is true for you. This is true for me. This is true for everyone. This is where we all started. This brings us back to a sober reality. Sometimes 
if we forget, not sometimes, all the time, if we forget our need for grace, we have little grace with others. If we forget how much we're forgiven of, it's hard for us to forgive. So what Paul does is he unpacks our sinful nature that we once had, and he does it starting with foolishness. Look at what he says. For we ourselves were once foolish. He is going to show the way that sin spirals and the way that it unravels, but it actually starts with foolishness because sin, or I would say that unbelief is rooted in sin and it starts and it plays out with foolishness. This is biblically supported. One, Paul says it here that we ourselves were once foolish, but I believe we have some verses up, up there for you guys. Look at Titus Hang on, we'll jump to it. I think Romans, there we go. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who were by their, unrighte- who, by their unrighteousness suppressed the truth. I think we have a couple more. I believe Psalms as well makes this clear. We threw Matthew in under the bus last minute to do slides today, so let's have grace with him. Psalm 14.1, The fool says in his heart, look here, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abdominal things. There is none who does good. Next. Psalm 53, one, the same thing. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So Paul's like, the very first thing that sin does is it makes you foolish. Please don't be offended, okay? I was at Albertsons this week. And I was checking out, and, and uh, the lady goes, oh, I see what you're doing. You're buying this stuff with this container so you can put it in here and make it seem like you made it all, right? And I'm like, I was like, sure. <laughs> I'm like, I'm full of baloney, but I was like, so are you, and you just showed your cards because I was like, it takes someone full of baloney to spot someone full of baloney, right? And so I was like, you just proved to me. And she goes, she, she laughs and goes, that's true. But she goes, but it's not very nice. In our culture, we say, this might be true, but it's not nice. What we should say is if it's true, it's actually the nicest thing that someone could tell you <laughs> because truth is a good thing. And so what Paul actually is saying is that the start of sin is foolishness. It's to suppress any knowledge of God. It's to say that there is no God. And Paul's like, that's where you were. That's where you start. That's where we all started is that we said there is no God. Now, here's the thing. Listen with me just for a minute. If you're not a Christian, you might say, and and I think you can be honest, that I'm not the way that I want to be. And the world is not the way that it should be. If you are an atheist and if you are a naturalist, if you are a materialist, which basically just means that you only believe that what exists is, is material things, that we're all matter in motion, molecules in motion, okay? If that's what you believe, then answer me this. Why is there something in you that says, I'm not the way that I would like to be and and I should be? Maybe you guys did the science experiment growing up to where you build a volcano and I think you need like vinegar, baking soda and water, something like that. Maybe nods. So yeah, I think. And so you, you place these elements inside of the volcano and you get an eruption, right? Is that true or is that false? It's nothing. It's just elements behaving like elements behave. And if we're just molecules in motion, molecules in motion actually don't make statements of truth, and they don't say, I don't like the way I do things. They just behave, okay? So where does your consciousness come from? 
where, where does it come from for you to go, I don't really like the way I am. I don't like the way my, my, my marriage is. I don't like the way my relationships are at. I don't like the way things are because molecules don't say that. They don't make truth statements. They just act and do what they do. Here's the other thing that they don't do. Water, CO2, none of these things look at injustice in the world and go, that enrages me. Something is wrong with that. Protoplasm doesn't do that. Just does what it does. It's not going to look at something and say, that's injustice. What is going on inside of you that you can look at something and go, that is unjust? What I would say, and, and what Paul would say, so please don't shoot me, is that for you to look at, and, and understand that, that, that there's an understanding of truth, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, that there's an understanding of justice, and then for you to just suppress all that and go, ah, I don't think so, can't be a God, would make someone foolish. To look around in the world and say, nah, I don't think so. To see creation, to see our conscience, to see all that's going on and say, nah, I don't believe in God. Paul is saying this is the first step of sin, is to deny God and become a foolish person. The Christian worldview has a response for this. Here's our response. That actually God created mankind in his own image. And God is a just and holy God. He knows justice. And he is just. Also, God created things to be good, to live in a perfect state with him and things aren't. And so what we're doing is trying to get back to a perfect state with God through our own works and our own efforts. It's man's attempt to get back to the state of garden. And so you can either reject this, and what Paul would say, that's foolishness to just flat out reject God, or... You can say, maybe there's a worldview where God exists. He says the next outworking of foolishness is to be disobedient. We see this in our children, right? Is that kids think they know better. So if we can say, nah, there's no God, then we can just be disobedient. And oftentimes we want to just say there's no God, truthfully, so we can be disobedient and just live the lives that we want to live. Thanks for creating anatomy. Thanks for creating marriage. Thanks for creating sex. I take my own views and my own opinions on it and just run with that instead. And so the natural outworking is to reject God. That's the first commandment, to either say, you're not real, or say, I'm not going to worship you. I'm going to worship myself, these little gods, or a lifestyle that I want to live. And so the outworking of the foolishness is disobedience. Again, parents, you can see this with your kids, because your kids will tend to believe they know better. Every time that we go against God and his word, what we're saying is that I actually know better. This leads to being led astray. I do what I want. I, the, the, the natural outworking is, of sin is that I will go and do as I want and as I please. And what I will actually live for is my own passions and pleasure. A lot of the mess that's created in life is because we chase passion and pleasure like crazy. We are pleasure and passion junkies. You want to know what you're passionate about? See what stirs up your passion. I was driving this week with uh, another Acts 29 brother, and we were sharing our heart and sharing our emotions, just a lot of just really having a moment. And someone like, I don't know if we cut someone off, but they started laying on the horn and stuff. And like, he rolls down his window and he's like, so angry. He's like, hangs his head out the window. And I'm like, little do they know, you got two unstable pastors sharing their heart and emotions with one another. And we're not at a good spot, right? 
The problem with that and our, our road rage, every emotion that we have is telling of something. Oftentimes it's that we think we deserve to be treated like this. This is what we think we deserve. Someone should treat me like this. Someone should look like this. Our passions actually tell what we're passionate about. I'm passionate about being respected. No one should disrespect me. I'm passionate about this. We're passionate about our hobbies. Take an iPad away from your kids. See what happens. Take, take, their, phone, take their phone away for an hour. Do it for a week. And you'd, you'd have some serious struggles, right? Why? We're created in the image of God. Pleasure's a good thing, which is why Psalm 1611 says that in his right hand in Christ are pleasures forevermore. It's also why it says in, in, in Hebrews, I want to say it's 1124, that it talks about that, that, that Moses exchanged a life to where he, he could have had all the riches. But it says specifically that he gave up those passions and those pleasures to serve God. We love passion. We love pleasure. So we become a fool. We become disobedient. We are led astray, and then we start adopting all of these passions and pleasures. What we do is we become addicts. And nothing will ever be enough. We need more. We need more. We need more. Whatever it is, we constantly feel this need to have more than what we have. What does that lead to? Look at what Paul says, malice and envy. When you feel the need to have more and then you see what other people have, this is why social media, guys, this is not just a soapbox to get off social media. I'm just saying, be careful. Because <laughs> when you see all that other people have, what you're forgetting is that oftentimes they're enslaved to needing those things. When, when we become disobedient, when, when we take this spiral, what's actually happened is we are becoming slaves to a master of sin, and we can't say no. If you're not a Christian, here's a challenge. Say no to things. Say no to porn. Say no to things that we're addicted to. It's really hard to do that. And so when we see things that other people have, date nights other people have, we shouldn't look at it with malice and envy. If anything, sometimes we could look for it with prayer and compassion. Then this leads to this, that you're hated by others and hating one another. This is, this is the final spiral of sin, is that it will lead you to hate God and hate others because you go, God should have given me the life that I deserve. God should have given me the kids I deserve. God should have given me the marriage I deserve. God should have given me the career I deserve, the degree I deserve. God should have given me more. And now I'm angry with God and I hate God and I hate that all these other people who aren't nearly as good as I am, they're not as good as a husband, they're not as good as a wife, they're not as good as a mom, dad, whatever it is, now I hate them too. And Paul says, hey, that was all of us. <laughs> That's where we all started. We all started with this level of brokenness. We all started with this level of sin. We all started completely depraved, in complete need of grace. If you don't remember this, what you can do, and if you don't remember the gospel as a solution, what you'll do is try to figure out how to fix everything in your life. What you'll also do is start to see people as the enemy, even though Paul says your fight's not against flesh and blood. You'll have to... Forget where you came from and live above other people. If you remember this, it sobers you. It makes you go, oh yeah, you, you too, me too, all of us.
universally all broken, all helpless, unable to save ourselves. That's how we all started. And that's what Paul is saying. We share this in common. Where sin starts, the way it spirals, the way it leads. And I would also say this before we move on. We've said this in weeks past. Sin will run its full course in your life. If you're living in sin, I would plead with you to get some brothers or sisters in Christ around you and ask them for help. Ask them to pray with you. Ask them to walk with you. Ask them to bear the burden with you. Look at what Paul says here. Verse 4. But. This big conjunction of but. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. I, I'll just be honest. Every time I, I, I see a section like this and, and then see this, I'm like, man, I hope that people see what a breath of fresh air this is. Whenever Paul lays out something so sobering that brings the room down, he comes in and this is like the moment in the movie where the person's fallen from the cliff. And at the very last second, the hero swoops in and grabs him. And he's like, but don't turn it off yet because the good news is coming. That's bad news. We all have that. Here's the good news. This is the really good news. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, God does not do kind things. Hear me out. God is kind. Therefore, he does kind things. God is good. Therefore, he does good things. The very nature of God is kind and it's good. So naturally, the outworking that is doing kind and good things. Notice it says appeared. How did it appear? Hebrews 1.3 tells us. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.19 also tells us, for in him the fullness of God in Jesus was pleased to dwell. How do we see God's goodness, his kindness, his grace, his mercy in Jesus Christ appearing here on this earth? Think of the kindest person you know, one or two. You can write them down. The kindest person you know. Now, if I told you to go sock that person in the face, you wouldn't do it, right? Why? Because they're kindness. Paul says in Romans that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. When you think of how kind those people are, know this, that God is infinitely kind. That he's infinitely compassionate, that, that, that he has an infinite state of mercy for those who are his. And so he's saying that, that when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, what does he say next in these three words? Look here. He saved us. How? Because God did 99% and we did 1%? Because he did 98 and we do 2%? No. It makes it clear. This gets rid of the age-long problem since the garden. Adam and Eve sinned against God, and then they made big leaves. They try to solve their problem by making themselves right with God. This fixes it. God's word makes it clear, not because of works done by us in righteousness. This gets rid of exhaustion. Let me ask you this. Are you exhausted? Are you tired? Is part of it because you are working to get in a right stance with God? You are working to gain God's love and approval. We were at Jerry's yesterday, and I watched my daughters, uh, and one of them specifically, move around. She needs my attention for almost everything she does. What I'm seeing in her is the same thing I see in many people, is we're longing for approval. She's longing to have her dad look at her and say, hey, I see what you did. That's awesome. I love you. Many of us are longing to hear the Father's approval. It would break my heart 
to know that I'd give, given my daughter a gift, either one of them, and to see them in the backyard just sweating profusely trying to work for the free gift I gave them. God purchased a gift for us through the blood of his son. He gives it by his grace, not by our works. And it's a gift that we can enjoy. It's a relationship we can enjoy. Many times we're exhausted because we're not resting and believing. This is when it comes to play. We can say, God, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. I'm exhausted because I'm trying to earn a free gift that you've given. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Look at what Paul says next. He saved us not because of works on us and righteous, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God saves us. Why? How? By his own mercy. When the text talks about God's monetary value, you know the one and only time it does it in Ephesians 2 is it talks about God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. Why does he save us? How does he save us? It's not by works. Why? Because of his mercy, because he wants to. God will have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He will save whom he wants to save. It's not works by, uh, done by us. I just want to say this. This is a little bit theological. It's nitpicky. If you've seen the cliffhanger, there's, there's, there's this movie. And, and this woman named Sarah goes out on the rope, right? And her harness starts to break. If you guys have seen Cliffhanger, it's, it's, it's like the big part of this movie, right? And Gabe, Sylvester Stallone, he, he goes out to save her. People will oftentimes explain the gospel and salvation like this. It's basically just like reaching up your hand, Sarah, and just grabbing hold of Gabe. That's all you got to do. It's like you're going to fall thousands of feet to your death. All you got to do is reach up and grab him, right? My problem with that is you could take credit for reaching up and grabbing a hold of Gabe. In this case, Jesus. And it's actually, it's not just Jesus saying, come and live. What is Jesus' invitation to his disciples? Come and die. So actually, anyone will choose life. Who's going to say, hey, I'll follow you to the cost of death. The only way that happens is by God breathing in his spirit inside of us and opening our eyes. That's why many people hear the gospel and go, wow, that's amazing. That's beautiful. And then some go, eh, why? Because God has not opened their eyes to see it. God has to breathe his spirit in us to see us and to behold and go, that's amazing. How does that happen? By his mercy and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. What does regeneration mean, right? It actually means new life, new birth. So look here, we get washed, we get cleansed, and then we get renewed. This is what the Holy Spirit does to us. You, you, you got to see this. This, this working of regeneration is done of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, opens our eyes, and what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit applies the work of Jesus Christ to our life. This is what we would call imputation. Jesus didn't arrive on scene as a 30-year-old and just go to the cross and say, here, I'm here to make you guiltless. Jesus arrived from a newborn and lived a perfect, obedient life. A Jewish man to a Jewish law. He walked and lived out the faithfully the Ten Commandments and, and everything that God com commanded. Why? Because when he went to the cross to take our place, he wasn't just saying, here, I'll die to forgive you and remove your guilt. What he's actually saying is, I'm not just here to do that. I'm actually here to supply my life of perfect, obedient righteousness to your life and make that yours as well. This is what the reformers called forensic justification. Forensic means that it belongs to, it's legal. Your legal standing with God that the Holy Spirit applies to you is the work of Jesus Christ, the cross. The Holy Spirit comes in and opens your eyes, gives you a new heart, and allows you to look and see who Christ is, what he's done, and then applies and gives all of his work to you. 
I don't know if you guys have heard the story of the prodigal son. But a story that's similar to it goes like this, is that there was two young boys who moved into a new school in a new neighborhood. Upon moving there, the younger brother, who was a bit awkward and a bit of a social outcast, was asked by some of the boys in the neighborhood, hey, would you like to come with us after school today? We're going to ride our bikes to the local swim hole and we're going to go swimming. The boy's never been asked to go play. He's never been invited to something like this. So with excitement, he jumps and says, of course. His older brother is suspicious. So the boys take him down to the watering hole. And these boys convince him that the best way to do this, and, and part of his initiation is that you got to go skinny dipping. And so they convince him they're all going to do it, and then he jumps in the water, and what do the boys do? They take his clothes and they take his bike and ride away. It probably makes you angry. His older brother was off at a distance because he was suspicious, seeing and knowing what was going on. What does his older brother do? On his way down there, he walks, and as he walks to his brother, he strips his clothes off one by one, gets to his brother and places all of his clothes on his brother and says, you can ride my bike. I'll walk back with you naked. In the moment, you see what's happened? The older brother took the shame. He took the hurt. He took all that it had done and all that this little boy felt. And he said, let me clothe you. Let me take it. Let me give you what's mine and make it yours. These belong to you. My clothes are yours. My bike is yours. That's what Christ does for us. He says, this is what's mine. My innocence, my blamelessness, my righteousness, my perfection. You might feel shame, you might feel guilt, you might feel dirty, but I'm making this yours, which is my Martin Luther says in his commentary to Galatians. I've made it my statement to throw away all shame and to live bold beyond measure. Why? Because Christ has made his righteousness my own. That's the washing. That's the regeneration. That's the Holy Spirit applying the work of Jesus to us. Look at verse 7. Almost done so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's no double jeopardy with God. Once you're tried and legally declared righteous and that Christ's righteousness becomes yours, God doesn't ever turn back on that. It's yours. It belongs to you. You have to hear this. If you have put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you are just as holy as Jesus Christ himself. You are just as righteous in the sight of God as Jesus Christ himself. You are just as loved, which is infinite, as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is himself. Because Jesus didn't give you some other work other than himself. Jesus gave you his work, his righteousness, his holiness, and his love from the Father. The hope that you will have in the future is the same hope you have right now. You'll be justified in the, in the future. The, the, the hope that you will be an heir one day is the hope that you're already an heir right now. What's an heir? We can go off Webster. A person legally entitled to the property of rank of another person's death. <laughs> In other words, when you go to Costco and I got my kids with me, I show them my thing and they're like, I'm with him. We walk now and we walk into eternity saying that we have union with Christ and can't be separated from that. It's done. That's the hope of eternal life. Listen, please. 
I want, I want to be compassionate here. Your hope is not in a future degree. Your hope is not in a better marriage. Your hope is not in anything other than all that you have and is made available to you in Jesus Christ and him saying, I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm never backing out. I'm never turning away. I'm with you side by side. I'm holding you. I'm carrying you right now all the way into eternity. You know, by all of the world standards that Christians are cheaters, complete cheaters. That all of the work that someone else did, we get the credit for. Think about it. In school, you call that a cheater. You're like, hey, I'm just going to copy off your paper. And they're like, you're, you're a cheater. That's what we get. We get all the work that Jesus died, he, uh, did. He makes it all ours, and we take all the credit for it. Why? Jesus wanted us to have everything that he had. Life with him for eternity. Infinite love from the Father. Mercy and compassion. Grace. This is why Paul's like, hey, this is who you were, but here's the best news ever. Heard Ian pray that earlier from my heart. This is, this is the message. This is it. This is the message of good news. It's not strategy. It's not systems. It's about a savior who did everything that needed to be done for us to be made right. Your guilt is gone. Your shame is gone. Here's the thing. There's no problem with this message. The problem is with our unbelief in it, which is why we pray, God, I believe, please help me with my unbelief. What do we do? Look at what verse 8 says. The saying is trustworthy. What's he saying? Paul says this multiple times. He's like, uh, it, it, uh, another reading is this saying that I just said, this is trustworthy. If, if you want to bank on something, bank on this. And I want you to insist on these things. Insist on the gospel message so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The outworking of this message is good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. I wanted to spend some time doing this. This is the message that we preach. This is the message we teach. This is the message that we stand on. Again, there's nothing wrong with this message. The problem is, is that we want to adopt something else to fix our lives other than this message. But this message, you've heard this said before, speaks to all areas of life. Can I encourage you guys to do this with your gospel communities this week? Insist on this message. Pray for your unbelief but show how this message speaks to all areas of life. Spend some time with your gospel communities throwing out different topics, throwing out different areas and say, hey, can you show me how the gospel, how this message actually speaks to it? I just want to give you a couple right now because we believe it speaks to everything. It shapes everything. Fear. We are living in a time with a lot of fear. Fear can lead to a lot of exhaustion, right? What is that? The bottom of fear is an unbelief. It is an unbelief that God is good and that God is in control, that God cares about the big things, but he also cares about the little things in your life. You see, outside of Christianity, we might not have much response to fear, but inside Christianity, we get to see this, that God says, hey, I know your life is dark right now. I know this moment is painful, but you need to know that I've always shown and have always, or that I've shown and have always had a plan to bring beauty from ashes, to bring glory from horror. How? Look at the cross. The, the most evil atrocity that's ever happened in human existence where an innocent man dies, God goes, I brought glory from that. 1 John 4.18 says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Many times we're fear because, uh, fearful because we're afraid of being abandoned. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of being hurt. But if you know and understand that the ultimate love that you need, listen, 
Christian or non, the ultimate love you need is the love, approval, and acceptance from God. When you grasp that, it casts out fear. If someone asked me, Rick, would you love to be one of the most brilliant scholars in all the world, grow in knowledge, or would you just be able to, uh, or would you like to have 100% belief in the gospel? I would rather have 100% belief in the gospel than anything else. Because the amount of freedom that would come from that, there wouldn't be fear because I would know God is good. He's in control of everything. That because of what Christ has done, I can trust him. He's in control of my life. Marriage. How does the gospel speak to marriage? First, it starts with an identity. You are not a husband and a wife, primarily. You're a child of God. Now, as a child of God, you can live out as a husband, as, as a wife, as a parent, but that's not ultimately who you are. Your identity is child of God. That's what the message points to. But the reason why so, many, uh, so, so oftentimes we have arguments in marriage is it would be like me asking you to swallow this Bible. Sometimes saying sorry feels like swallowing this Bible, right? Why? Because if you look at our marriages, they actually aren't great pictures of grace. They actually aren't good pictures of the gospel. What we say is, since you're not doing this, I'm going to treat you like this. When you do this, I'll treat you like this. What the gospel says is, I'm not going to treat you how you deserve to be treated. Instead, I'm going to take on all the mistreatment for you. And when you rebel against me, when you run away from me, I'm going to run after you and I'm going to love you. And the more that we understand that, the more it'll shape our marriages so that we can say sorry. Because when we say sorry, what it shows is that I'm in need of grace. What about parenting? Man, parenting parenting is hard, right? It's exhausting. And here's why. You got one or two sinners that are really broken, trying to also shepherd and lead other sinners that are really broken. It's like a recipe for disaster. Again, the message shapes it because your identity is not in being a mom or dad. It is not in how well your parents behave. It is not well how people look in on you and go, oh man, they're, they're, their kids are awful. Your identity, and you've got to grasp that, is that you're a child of God, a son or daughter of God, and then you get to parent out of that. The ultimate hope for your kids is not that they have good behavior. It's that they have a good belief, a good belief in this message. You have to also know that the gospel speaks to this. We're so afraid that we're messing up our kids' lives. Can, can one parent say amen? We're afraid we're messing up our kids' lives. Here's the good news, is that God is the one in the business of saving. It is our job over and over and over again to present this message of the gospel and trust that he's doing the work, even with all of our faults and failures, to save and transform our hearts and kids. The gospel allows you to breathe. The gospel takes the weight off of you and what you're supposed to do in all of your performance and says, first, you're a child of God. Breathe, rest, and now live out of that. But ultimately, trust in the work that he's doing. Let's pray. God, we thank you. You've sent your son to do what we are powerless to do. Thank you for the message of hope, the message of good news. Show us how the message speaks to all of life. That it speaks to our marriages, that it speaks to our families, that it speaks to hurt, that it speaks to pain, to fear, to shame, to guilt. God, let us apply that message to ourselves through preaching it to ourselves, but let us as brothers and sisters apply it to one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.